pastor. Uh, we're told in scriptures to be a shepherd. Of course, we are the under-shepherd. And there's one chief shepherd. Who is the chief shepherd, church? Jesus. And as always, we want to remind you, he is the true senior pastor of the church. Jesus is the head of the church from whom we gather our nourishment. But those who are pastors serve as under-shepherds. And part of the job of being a shepherd is to help in some ways to protect the sheep and to warn them of danger, which brings me to a very, very important question. Have I ever warned you about the cheese at Shoney's? Have I? I wasn't sure that I had, so if not, he who has ears, let him hear, all right? My family and I used to love the breakfast buffet at Shoney's. Anyone used to be that? An emphasis on used to love, all right? All right? And uh, during the Christmas break of my senior year in high school, we went to the Shoney's in Alexandria. And... Uh, Later, we would deduce the one item that I ate that varied from what they had eaten, and it was the cheese, the hot nacho-type cheese, you know, that just goes great on biscuits, right, apparently. Who, who has cheese? Well, it goes great on eggs and then everything else on your plate. But uh, to make a short story very long, I woke up uh, later that night not feeling well. I was very dizzy. And then it was interesting because sometimes when you're dizzy and sometimes when you're sick, the contents that are in your stomach just tend to move up and then out, right? And then repeat. So uh, I ended up going to the doctor very early the next day and uh, shared some with him while I was there. And then he immediately put me in the hospital because it was evident that I was dehydrated and that I'd apparently experienced some form of food poisoning. Now, I don't know how many of you have spent a lot of time in the hospital, but I thought one of the most interesting things was, as they gave me fluids and, and then meds to deal with the dizziness, one of the interesting things was the doctor says this funny phrase, now try and get some rest. Have you ever tried to do that in the hospital? Now, you could do that except for what? Every 17 minutes they come in, Gaden, your people, you nurse-type people, you, you people, well... And, and uh, of course, Gaden's labor and delivery, so she doesn't really come in that often, and hopefully we're not going back to see her soon. But we, uh, you know, they come in like every 17 minutes, and like, weren't you just in here, you know? It's difficult to rest. But one of the reasons they come in is they come in to check something. What do they come in to check? They check your what? Vitals. Good. Look at you medical people. Vital signs, all right? They check your vitals, which tend to be blood pressure, heart rate, temperature, and I don't know anything else. I just guessed at those three. But, all right, so they check your vitals. And obviously one reason they do that is because if your vitals are abnormal, which is really funny, what's normal? But if they're abnormal, then something's wrong. If they're elevated or if they're below, then they know that something's wrong because these are sort of a baseline. Which caused me to begin to ponder, how does a church do that? How does the church do that? And the reason I pondered that is because this past week, you know, I was in Tupelo, and I preached at a church plant that was called the Church at Trace Crossing, and it's four years old. And the theme, uh, the event was called Pulse. And uh, the reason it was Pulse, it was kind of like, look, we're four years old. Uh, where are we? How are we doing? And, it, and it's interesting. They, they've been through a difficult time. Their pastor had uh, some moral failures, and, and they are without a, a pastor at this point. And, and so it was, a, it was a great time to actually be encouraging in, for them in the Word. But it caused me to think, how, how do we check a church's vital signs, be they four years or, like us, 14 years old. For those of you who don't know, Cross Point is 14 years old. November 1st, we will officially be 14 with the Articles of Incorporation. I know you'll want to celebrate that, but 14, how are we? How do we gauge that? Well, there's a couple things we could do, and I brought some helps along the way, my handy postman mail purse, all right? And uh, 
there's a couple things. We could check church books, which one option is Aqua Church. All right? I don't know what this means, but it feels wet. So, all right? So, Aqua Church is an option by Leonard Sweet. Transformational Church, perhaps, could tell us information about how we're doing, vital signs. Simple Church. So, in case Aqua and Transformational aren't what you want, but you want simple, you could roll that. All right? Breakout Churches. I don't know if this means a rash or what exactly <laughs> breakout means, but I've got it on my shelf. So... Oh, and here's a big one, purpose-driven church. We prefer not to be. We, I don't want a purpose. We just want to hang out, right? All right, so purpose-driven church, nine marks of a healthy church. No, we prefer unhealth. Thank you. All right, yes, nine marks of a healthy church. Oh, here's one, church next. Of course, most of you after today, it may be next church. Where are you going next Sunday, right? All right, but this is Church Next by Gibbs. And the interesting thing about this guy, this guy came to New Orleans and came to one of our doctoral seminars, and he told us that the age of the orator was dead. We no longer need theologically trained preachers. We needed just theologically trained musicians. That oratory was dead. It was all about music. One of the interesting things was David Platt leaned over to me, and he said, I find it interesting. He's not singing his lecture. <laughs> so, Church Next. I don't know if it'll ever arrive or not, but there you go. The disciple-making church, all right? We could be the disciple-making church. No, that's for special churches. Oh, here's one, the church on the other side. That's Church of the Highlands, all right? So, <laughs> church on the other side, right there, all right? And then two more, the deliberate church. Now, who wants to be the accidental church, right? <laughs> we just did junk and it happened accidentally. We don't even know how that happened, which for most part, that is true, right? We don't know how we got here. Well, let's begin with you left the Bible. All right, so, and then my favorite one, total church. I think that's the best one. You take all of these and you're like, no, this one, total church, plus it's skinnier, right? This is actually a very great book. Now, these are obviously things, can you believe there are this many books on the church and this is just the icing on the cake, right? There's, there's so many more. We could check all of these for vital signs of how do we know we're being good? I mean, are we disciple making? Are we aqua? Are we total? Are we next? Are we on the other side? Are we deliberate? Are we healthy? There are lots of things in there that could be very helpful, but I would propose to us that where we've been in Romans 12 is most helpful for checking the vital signs of a church. I think that these are great and good resources, but I think the guy who planned the church and purchased the church probably has the best means of what the church should look like and has a word for us and how we can tell, here's how we're doing. Here's how we're doing as the church, or as we've called it, the gospel community. And I think we've already seen some of this. For those of you, again, this is your first Sunday, or maybe you've missed a couple. We've been in Romans 12 for seven months. And one of the things that we, we were in Galatians, and we grasped a little bit of what the gospel word was, and now we've transitioned to Romans 12 to say, what's the gospel community? What difference does the gospel word make in our lives? And the truth is, the gospel word not only forms, all right, and not only nourishes and creates the gospel community, but it also sets the boundaries and shapes us and tells us what we are to be about. And we've seen already in Romans 12 that uh, there are some vital signs. One of the most vital signs from Romans 12:1 is, look, we live lives of worship. Sunday isn't the only time we worship. One of the vital signs is that we are people who worship all through the week and that we use our bodies to show that Christ is our what, church? I've said it enough. Come on, someone help me out. Christ is our treasure. I heard a whisper, or I pretended to. All right, so 
Good, we'll need to review that 700 times. We use our bodies to show that Christ is our treasure. So we live differently, all right? The gospel changes what we do and how we use our bodies. We worship with our lives. Romans 12, 2 shows us a vital sign. It says that we think differently, that we're beginning to think more and more like God and less like the world so that we can know what he wants and what's good and acceptable. We saw in Romans 12, 3 and, and verses 4 and 5, that a vital sign is humility in us. Humility and then dependence both on Christ and one another. How can a church tell if it's going along okay? Well, is there arrogance enough to the point that we say, I don't need other people, I've got Jesus, I don't need others. Well, see, that reveals immaturity and ignorance. What we understand about a vital church or a church, a healthy sign is, look, we're humble, we know we didn't save ourselves. That's why he says, consider your faith. It's in Christ and it's from Christ. We didn't save ourselves. It's a gift from him. And then, on top of that, he's made us to be one body with many parts. We need each other. And then one more vital sign is that we actually use spiritual gifts. That's what 6, 7, and 8 were about. And we use them for the good of others and for God's glory. These are obviously some vital signs. If a church is not worshiping with their lives, if a church is thinking more like the world than God, if a church is full of folks that are full of self-pride, and don't understand how we are interrelated to one another, if a church is full of people who aren't using their spiritual gifts, then that church is in great trouble. So these are obviously some great vital signs to say, look, are we living this or not? But what we will see today is the list goes on. And we're going to see actually 13 more vital signs that are found in just five verses. In the next five verses, Paul ramps up the vital signs. And he gives us 13 exhortations. And uh, if we're not careful, we'll just read through them and move on. We don't want to do that. So I want you to stand with me. We're going to read verses 9 through 13. And then we're going to pause and go deeper here for a moment. Here's where Paul picks up after he's given us instructions on spiritual gifts. He picks up in verse 9 and says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Father, as always, we're grateful that you've preserved this text, that we may encounter it. And we're grateful that this text is living and active as your spirit still speaks through it. Father, we pray that you would give us ears to hear, you would give us eyes to see, you would light this text up to us. And Father, this is vitally important. These are vital signs of the gospel community, of your church. So Father, would you produce these in us? We can't produce them in ourselves. We need your spirit to use them in our lives. So Father, would you do that? And if we see that we are in error or we are not living particular aspects of these verses, would you convict us? And then, as always, provide your grace that is sufficient to wash us and make us new. Father, we want to be a church that is your church. We don't want to create our own definition of church, and we don't want to focus on just one specific aspect to the detriment of all others. Father, we want to be a healthy, vital church, so help us to live Romans 12. Pray now. Speak to us. It's in your name. Amen. As we jump in, and so in case you missed when we read through, Again, in these, thir in these uh, five verses, in 9 through 13, 
there are 13 different exhortations. And I've listed them for you because there are 13 vital signs. So there in your outline you'll see. The gospel community loves without hypocrisy. The gospel community hates what is evil. The gospel community clings to what is good. The gospel community loves one another with brotherly affection. The gospel community outdoes one another in showing honor. The gospel community is not slothful in zeal. The gospel community is fervent in spirit or in the spirit. The gospel community serves the Lord. The gospel community rejoices in hope. The gospel community is patient in tribulation. The gospel community is constant in prayer. The gospel community contributes to the needs of the saints. The gospel community seeks to show hospitality. We could also go on, 14 through 21, provide at least 12 more exhortations, which we'll get to should the Lord give us these days. But we could add, just beginning in 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. We could add, the gospel community blesses those who persecute them without cursing them. The gospel community rejoices with those who rejoice. And this is funny because sometimes we don't. Sometimes we're jealous. Sometimes we're envious of what other people have gotten, and we don't rejoice with them. Sometimes we wish we had gotten that. The gospel community weeps with those who weep. Sometimes this doesn't happen. Sometimes we're glad people are experiencing what they do. And that's the flesh, and that's not Christ. And so that has to change. So these are just some vital signs. Let me ask you a question. What do you think when you read this list? When you see this list, what what do you think? Are there any among us that think, man, I'm rocking this list. I'm 13 for 13, yo. Anyone? Is there anyone who looks at this list and thinks, man, Crosspoint is rocking this list? That would be very encouraging to me if you did. But I don't think so. But I would take your uh, encouragement because sometimes we just need false encouragement, right? No, that's not true. We're going to get to that. Let love be genuine. Are there any among us that think this? No, I, I, I don't think there are. And I don't know about you, but when I read this list this week, and any time I keep reading it, keep reading it, I am immediately pushed back to the gospel. And here's why. I have failed to live this list. This is what God expects. This is what God commands. I have failed, and I need a Savior. And here's the incredible thing. Christ has lived this and much more perfectly. He has lived the law, and I receive full credit for that. I don't get credit for my failure. Jesus took that failure on the cross. But I get full credit for his full obedience. And I'm immediately pushed to the gospel as I see this and recognize my failure, and I'm grateful for a Savior. The second reason I'm pushed to the gospel is my only hope for living these things is Jesus. Our only hope for this being produced in us is what Christ has accomplished on the cross and then his very spirit that empowers us. For instance, only in Christ will my love be genuine, or the word there means without hypocrisy. Without him, I would be most concerned with me and not most concerned with you. All right? So without Jesus, I'm going to be concerned about me and not you. Only in Christ will I hate evil. You know, without Jesus... Romans says we go from bad to worse. So without Jesus, I would not hate evil. I would love evil and continue to love evil more and more. Without Jesus, only in Christ it is that I will cling to good, as it says in the rest of verse 9. So without him, I wouldn't even desire good. So as I read this list, and I hope that as you read it, it should immediately push us to the gospel. And I don't mean just for salvation. I mean also for sanctification Christ has perfectly lived this. We get credit for it. Praise the Lord. Anyone grateful for that? Christ's substitutionary work for us. The second thing is, he is our only hope 
for living this. As we see this, he is all that we have. Which gets me, I guess, to one other point, but I'm going to phrase it as a question. Do you think God's will is for us to live, Romans 12, 9 through 13? Do you think this is what God's will is for his church? Okay, you do. All right. Is this his plan? Well, then we have to get to a question. How then does that happen? How do we live this? And I'm really glad you asked that. All right? Because we're going to spend some moments here. If we're going to live, Romans 12, 9 through 13, you'll see just a note on your outline there. We must take time to see what's here. It would be very possible to read this list and move on and probably experience a little change. So many of us, if we're doing a, a daily Bible reading and you come to Romans 12, it's possible to read Romans 12, think about it a little bit, and then move on and it not change us very much, right? But if we believe these are vital signs for the church, then we want these to change us. I could do these in one sermon and we could move on with life. But the point isn't moving on. Friends, the point is moving in, moving deeper and grasping. We don't want to miss it. The goal isn't just that we get through Romans 12. Should I be in Romans 12 for the rest of my pastorate here? Well, then it would be good time spent because we don't want to miss these. We don't want to move past it. We want to go deeper. If these are vital signs of the gospel community, then you know what we should probably do? We should probably memorize these. We should probably meditate on these. We should probably use these to encourage one another. And I know without a doubt, we should pray these. We should pray these. God, make this true in my family. Make this true in my life. Make this true in our midst, in our faith community. So that's the second part of how are we going to live this? Not only do we take time to see what's here, but we pray. We pray and ask God to produce these vital signs in us through his spirit. Romans 12, 9 through 13 is intended to be produced from the inside out, just as Colossians 1, that you would know and do. And the way you would do that is you would be empowered by his spirit, right? The point is not that we achieve this once. This is what I want to make sure you understand, right? The point is not that we achieve these in one act. Yes, I hated evil once. The point is that I hate evil more and more day by day and week by week, right? The point is, yes, I showed brotherly affection once to that homie over there, right? That's not the point. If we're just doing it one time, we're not going to be faithful to this text. The point is that I always show brotherly affection. So the point is not that we achieve this one time and we move on. The point is that these describe Crosspoint. The point is that these are true of Crosspoint, that the Spirit is producing them in increasing measure. So I guess I would just ask us, how many of us are memorizing Romans 12? How many of us are thinking constantly on Romans 12? How many of us are praying Romans 12? You want to know what you can do when you go out of here? Memorize, meditate, pray, beg God. Produce these in me through your spirit. Produce these in our church. Well, now that you know we're going to take our time and why we are, we're going to look at just verse 9 today. And shock of all shocks, we're actually only going to look at the, verse, the first part of verse 9. Verse 9 says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. If you don't know what abhor is, it means hate, all right? Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. We're going to focus on these, but I want us to take time on just the very first part. Let love be genuine. Let me ask you a question. Can you believe that the gospel community would need to be exhorted to love one another without being a hypocrite? Can you believe that Paul would write this, right? He's like, let me remind you, love one another without being a hypocrite. Can you believe that we would need to be reminded of this? I can. I can believe it. But not so much because I know you people, but because I know me. I know me. 
And I have to be reminded of this. One uh, commentator said, most people know how to pretend to love others. Most people know how to pretend to love others, how to speak kindly, avoid hurting their feelings, and appear to take an interest in them. But how many of us have met people you're not certain they do know how to pretend? <laughs> you know, how many of us have met people that their spiritual gift is hurting feelings? Anyone? Yeah, we've met them. Well, let's not use those gifts. All right, so uh, we may even be skilled in pretending to feel moved with compassion when we hear of others' needs or become indignant when we learn of injustice. But God calls us to real and sincere love it goes far beyond politeness. Sincere love requires concentration and effort. It means helping others become better people. It demands our time, money, and personal involvement. So as we think about vital signs, where we want to land today is the very first one. Let love be genuine. Let love be without hypocrisy. And here's what Paul is writing and what we want to hear. Don't let your love be fake. Don't let your love be an external facade. Let love actually be love. One theologian has says, it is difficult to express how ingenious almost all men are in counterfeiting a love which they do not really possess. Which gets me, could the church really be full of a bunch of fakes? Yes. Or the Greek word here is posers. Could the church, I'm just kidding, that's a skate or die term. So, uh, it's not really Greek. But, could it be? Yes. But not the true church, not the capital C church. See, the capital C Church, love is genuine. And that's what we want to be a part of. It's not fake. It's not an external facade. It's love that we can't help. It's love that's flowing out of us because of love that is poured into us by Christ, right? So not wanting to assume that all of us possess a clear understanding of love and hypocrisy, all right? Let love be genuine. I don't want to assume that we all grasp what this is. I want us to spend time on just these two terms. And we're going to begin with, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. I'm just kidding. All week long, I've been thinking about love songs. Anytime you meditate on love, I've got a thousand of them in my mind playing right now. I'm like, mute. Okay, so what is love? What does it mean? The word here is agape. What's the word? Good. And the idea behind this word is selfless love. It's primarily concerned with others, which is the polar opposite of hypocrisy because hypocrisy is primarily concerned with self, right? If I'm being a hypocrite, it's not really because it's about them. It's about me. So this is a perfect dichotomy that Paul has written under the influence of the Spirit here. He says, let love, let, let it be selfless. Let it be concerned with the others rather than letting it be hypocritical or fake. And when we think about love, I think sometimes we reduce it to just sentimentalism. We just have this, ah, you know, and we think these fuzzies. But love in the Bible is more than fuzzies, friends. Love is very tangible, and there's some specific things. I want you to hold your place in Romans and turn to the right to 1 Corinthians 13. One of the clearest expositions on love. And then we're going to come back here to Romans 12. But I just, again, don't want to assume that we know what love is. 1 Corinthians 13 spells out love very clearly. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul writes, and he says in verse 1, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. 
Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. <laughs> endures. Endures all things. I was in Tupelo for a while. <laughs> Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And of course, it's always been said that in place of the word love, you could insert your name to know whether this is being produced in you so that Landon is patient and kind. Landon does not envy or boast. Landon is not arrogant or rude. These are a good symptom or or a good vitals check here of what love is to know, is this true of me? And if it's true of me, is it true of our congregation? What is love? And this is what Paul is providing an incredible picture of what love is. That it's not arrogant. It's not rude. There are tangible things to it. He's also given us some back in Romans 12. In this very verse, let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. The rest of this verse that should the Lord give us next week, we'll, we'll press on into hating evil. And I would just be honest with you to say today, I don't hate evil enough. I need Christ to help me hate evil even more. Because if I did hate evil enough, I would choose sin less. For some reason, I keep choosing these sins because I don't have the same attitude toward it as Christ does. And so I'm in continual need of having his mind toward sin and toward evil. But love, tangibly in this picture, is hating evil and clinging to what's good. Uh, One of our scholars whose last name is Moo, which I always find interesting, wanted to share that with you, doesn't work on a farm, but he says... Love is not genuine when it leads a person to do something evil or to avoid doing what is right. And right is defined by God in his word, and we'll cover that more next week. We don't get to define what's evil and what's good. God defines what's evil and what's good, and we'll get to that in a moment. Because in our world, there's a lack of moral absolutes, and so whoever's strongest can determine good, right? That's what we see in the world. That's not what we see in the word. But in a moment, I I want us to grasp this. Love, then does not lead someone to do something evil. I think that goes a long way for how we date. I think that goes a long way for how we fill out our taxes. I think it goes a long way for how we counsel people. Love then doesn't lead people to do something evil. And love does not keep people from doing good. Love doesn't keep people from doing good. Love is going to push them to do the good. That is the loving thing to do, even if it hurts, even if it's embarrassing. This is what we see about love, what it is. Why does love matter? Pastor Byron shared last week about loving the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind. Why does love matter? Jesus says the two most important things are loving God with all our heart, soul, and mind and loving our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus says these two things matter more than anything else. So friends, how are we doing in these two areas? Are we loving God with all our heart? Are we loving our neighbor as ourselves? Revelation 2.4, Jesus chastises the church at Ephesus because they've forgotten their first one. They've forgotten their first love. He says, you're doing all kinds of things, but you've forgotten your first love. Love matters so that we can know. John wrote in 1 John, and he says, we know we've passed from death to life in love we have for one another. You know how we know that we're really in Christ? Because I have a love for my brother and sister. And so love is important so that we might know that we're in Christ. And not just that we might know, but that the world might know. He says, you know how they'll know you're my disciples? In the love that you have for one another. So you want to know why love matters? It's the most important thing, Jesus says, in two regards, loving me and loving your neighbor. 
and that we may know that we're in Christ and that they may know we're in Christ as we display this love. First John, John writes, he says, Beloved, if we're born of God, we love. So friends, here's the, the trail we've been on. Again, we always kind of point out, many of us perhaps said a salvation prayer, but John doesn't point back and say, just remember the prayer and you're good. John says, if you love, you can know you've been born of God. If you're not loving, perhaps, friend, it's because you've never truly been born of God. There's no work inside of you. This is eternally important this morning. So you don't want to miss, as Paul says, let love be genuine. You don't want to miss what love is. If we're not loving, could it be because Christ isn't in us? How then is love produced? Well, Romans 5, 5 says that he pours his love into us. All that God expects from us he does what, church? He provides for us. And so as he says, love me with all your heart and love your neighbor, he provides the very love that we need. He pours it into us. So he gives us the love, and then his spirit uses it, continues to fan it into flame, right? But there's another way that we're built up in love. Hold your place. Turn to Ephesians. Turn to the right, to Ephesians, because we don't want to miss this. We covered it two weeks ago, but it's vitally important to where we are in, in Romans. If Crosspoint is going to be a church that actually loves and that has genuine love, well, then we must be an Ephesians 4 type of church. Verse 15 of Ephesians 4 just says this, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So if our love is going to be genuine, how then do we love? How do we arrive there? We find in Ephesians 4 that if we're going to love, it's because each part is working properly. Could it be, friends, that Crosspoint isn't being built up in love because some of you are holding back? Could it be, friends, that Crosspoint isn't being built up in love because some of you are not exercising your gifts in the Lord? If we're going to be built up in love, if love is going to be genuine, if we're going to live Romans 12, 9, we must live Romans 12, 3 through 8, in which we are humble, in which we realize we're a body that needs each other, and then we use those gifts. We cannot get to Romans 12, 9 if we're living in disobedience to 3 through 8. So how is it that love becomes genuine? Well, we're built up in love as each part is working properly. That means students, youth, you have a part to play. And I'm burdened because I think some of you aren't grasping it based on things that are on your Facebook. I think some of you aren't grasping, and I feel that Christ is a component, but not the core. Friends, Christ is the core, and he affects every area. He affects how I do homework. He affects what I write. He affects what I wear. He affects how I spend his money. Christ is the core of all of it. And I don't mean that to pick on you. I mean it as a shepherd's concern that there's some disconnects, and not just with our students, but with our adults, and with even grown children of adults. There are disconnects. We say we're in Christ, yet we can't see Christ in us. And if we're going to see this, friends, we have to be yielded to Christ and then each of us do our part. When you hold back, you hold all of us back. And then we're all built up in love so that love is genuine. The other thing that I think is very important, in Ephesians 4, he talks about spiritual gifts, but for the purpose of love. In Romans 8, he talks about spiritual gifts and moves to love. In 1 Corinthians 12, he talks about spiritual gifts and then moves to love. I don't think it's an accident. And all three times that Paul is addressing spiritual gifts, he immediately moves to love. Because I think we're the people who often stop at spiritual gifts, and we see them as an end in themselves. Spiritual gifts are a means to an end. They're not an end in themselves, and the means is love. 
So we tend to focus on possessing the gift. Friends, we need to focus on the purpose of the gift. And the gift is for love. And that's why we use them. And if we're going to live 12-9, we've got to be living 12-3-8. through 8. We're using our gifts and we're building one another up. That's why membership's important. That's why it's not about just meeting on Sundays. It's about life together. It's about life together. Gifts aren't just used in this room. Very few gifts are used in this room on Sunday mornings, actually. Where the gifts are used is as we interact with one another in small groups and community as we do life together. Well, let love be genuine. What is genuine then? It means hypocrisy. And I borrowed some notes here on hypocrisy from John Piper, who borrowed them from the Bible. And I share them with you just because I think it's important. You know, I'm not trying to steal them. I thought they were good. I wanted to share them with you. And just a couple things then. What is hypocrisy? Because I think some of us probably think we understand. So where it says, let love be genuine in the text, it says, don't let, let love not be hypocritical, right? Here is what hypocrisy is. It's when we try to make the outside look better than the inside. When we try to make the outside look better than the inside, it looks on the outside as if we're loving, but the inside tells a whole different story. Here's what Scripture says, 1 Corinthians 13, 3. We just read it. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, you really can't sacrifice more than that, right? But he says, if I don't have love, then I gain nothing. You can give away all you want. You can sacrifice all of you want, but if it's not because love is on the inside, it doesn't matter what the external gift is. It doesn't matter what the external act is. And so hypocrisy is we want the outside to look better than the inside. Jesus tended to deal with scribes in this way. He says, you hypocrites. He uses this same word. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. That's why I beg each Sunday that we mean the words we sing. It doesn't matter if you sing these words and you sing them in tune. It doesn't matter that if you praise just with your lips. If your heart is far from God, it's not a pleasing gift to Him. We don't want to be people who just say and do the right things. Doing should flow out of being and what we are and what Christ is making us. Matthew 23, 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Are we hiding internal sin by putting up a moral external front? Are we loving one another both internally and externally? Friends, you can fool us, but you will never fool God. And you don't want to be the people who are trying to fool each other. We want to be the people that what's outside is because of what's inside, that it's genuine love. Number two, we hide our flaws by drawing attention to other people's flaws. In Luke 6, Jesus says, How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that's in your eye when you yourself don't see the log that's in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that's in your brother's eye. 1 Corinthians thirteen six. what we just read. Love rejoices with truth. Hypocrisy is about falsehood, concealment, deceit, and hiding. We focus on others' flaws, but don't deal with our own. This isn't genuine love. Number three, we want to gain and keep the praise and approval of other people. That we love in this way, but it's not about them. It's about our own praise and our own glory. In Matthew chapter 6, here's what Jesus says. Thus, when you give to the needy, 
Sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, you've received their reward. Friends, the greatest thing is when hypocrisy, when hypocritic love, it's about us. It's about us being praised. Here's what the cross does for us that we can't miss. Love doesn't crave the praise of man. Love has been set free from that bondage. In fact, it's close to the essence of love. It doesn't think highly of itself. It doesn't think much about itself at all. It is riveted on Christ and all that God is for us in Him. The command to love without hypocrisy is really a command to know Christ and love Christ and find your satisfaction in Christ so that you don't crave the praise of men anymore. That's what love, when it's genuine, it's because we find so much satisfaction in Christ that we're free to love everyone else even if they never love us in return, even if they never send a thank you note, even if we never get recognition from anybody here. We're set free to love and it not be about us, but about their best interests. That's when love is genuine. One more, we tend to want religious zeal without gospel integrity. It's hypocrisy. Luke 13, Jesus healed a woman who was sick for 18 years and he did it on the Sabbath. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Imagine if you're that woman for a minute. You've been ill for 18 years, and this religious leader, instead of rejoicing, he's like, why didn't you come on the other six days? You want to be healed? That's when we heal people, right? Mm. The Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? He says, you're not concerned about her. You're concerned about you. And you're using religious zeal to hide your own things. You know, there's nothing more discouraging than preachers who preach against adultery while they're engaged in it. There's nothing more discouraging than preachers who preach against homosexuality while they're engaged in it. Friends, we don't want to be those who are religious zeal only to hide our internal sin issues. That's not true love. So let me give you a summary. It's there in your outline. Pull this all together. How is it that love is genuine? How is it that love is without hypocrisy? Well, love does not put up artificial fronts. It's not about just the outside. It's about the inside. And the only way the inside is going to be changed, you meditate on the gospel every day, begging Christ to be produced in you more and more and more. Love does not dwell on the flaws of others. Love does not crave the praise of men. And love does not act religious to hide sin. Love forgets itself and looks to Christ and overflows with joy in him to meet the needs of others. Love looks to Christ for everything we need. So that just brings me to a final question. Is this us? Is this the type of love that's being produced at Crosspoint? Is this the type of love that's being produced in our homes? Or are we the people that want our recognition because we're not yet satisfied enough in Christ? We want more from others. Is love being manifested in the way we hate evil and cling to what's good? We're going to get there next week, should the Lord give it to us. I want Pastor Byron to come, and I want us to have a time to respond to this. And as he comes, I want to give you one closing illustration of, of this. You know, as you read Acts 5, there were two people, a married couple, Ananias and Sapphira. And you'll remember as you read Acts 5 that they had a piece of property and they sold it. And at that point... The church was holding all things in common, and people were giving. And as there was need, folks would sell land 
and give it to meet others. I don't think that should change in our midst, friends. I think that should still be true of us. I think that's still a vital sign of what it means to be the church. But Ananias and Sapphira create a plan to give, but to hold some back, right? But as they gave, the only problem is they found that they couldn't lie to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit tends to know everything. Uh, and so Ananias obviously goes first, presents his gift, and Peter says, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? Which Ananias isn't really given a chance to answer. He just falls down dead. The men come, take him out, and they bury him. A few hours later, in walks Sapphira. And Peter says, did you give, did you sell the lamb for this and this? She says, yes. And he says, the same people that carried out your husband's dead body are here to carry yours. She falls down dead. And then one of the greatest understatements in all of the New Testament, great fear seized the church. Folks started confessing everything. I, I once had a honey bun at night. It was two in the morning. And I wanted a Twinkie too, right? Here's the thing. With Ananias and Sapphira, they were busted because their love wasn't genuine, friends. It was exactly the opposite of what's in this text. It was hypocritical. Because it was not about the gift. It was about them. It was not about the good of others. It was about their own good. And it was not about them uh, praising God. It was about them receiving praise. So the short warning I would say to us is, they did not get away with it, neither will we. Friends, if our love is not genuine, if you don't really love the folks that are on the other side of this room, then we probably shouldn't leave this room until we beg God to change our heart. I read a statement that said Adrian Rogers says that Baptists are great in the battlefield but not good in the barracks together. I pray that's not true of us. I don't want to be united with you as we stand out there for the sake of the gospel and inside we don't like each other. Friends, this is a vital sign of the church. I didn't write it. I just read it. So this isn't true of us. We need to beg God this morning produce this love in us. We don't want to be fake. We don't want to be external. I want to actually love you because I can't help it. His love is so poured into me, it just flows out to you. No matter how you treat me. No matter how you, what you say to me. Is that true of you and your family? Is that true of us, friends? If not, I want to give us a chance to respond. Maybe we just need to come and beg God on behalf of our congregation. Produce this in us, Jesus. Father, we thank you for your word. It's our prayer. Produce Romans 12 in us. And I beg you as a pastor that you would help me to model these things. Father, I know my sin, as David said, it's ever before me. We know we're not going to be perfect. But Father, I pray in increasing measure you would help me to hate evil, cling to what's good. I pray that as I claim to love the folks in this congregation, it would not just be a claim, it would be the truth be because of what you're producing in us as we meditate on your gospel and how you loved enemies and how you loved strangers who were separated from you. I pray then that you would fill us with that love and it would flow through us to one another. I pray it would be true in our families. If it's true in our families, it'll be true in our congregation. I pray for your spirit then to guide us how we respond to this today. Father, I pray that love would be genuine pray that Jesus would not just be a component. I pray we would not be the people 
Sunday is our Jesus component, and then Monday through Saturday is our time. God, I pray that you would remove all the disconnects. Jesus would truly be Lord over us. Jesus would be King. Please produce this in us. Produce it in me. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.